Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Welcome to the long-awaited FDR episode. Firstly, a little housekeeping. 10 American Presidents is now part of the new Agora Podcast Network. Agora is a network of intelligent, independent podcasts which you can find by either going on to iTunes, Facebook or Twitter. This month, we are promoting the podcast When Diplomacy Fails by Zach Twomley. Zach is an excellent podcaster whose show looks at the reasons why nations go to war. It's a highly recommended listen. Doing these shows is a real joy, if not also back-breaking editing. This show took me some seven days to edit, and that was after some five hours of speaking to the excellent narrator, David Petrusha. One of the joys of editing a show like this is finding rare recordings that help to tell and illustrate the story. In this episode, you'll find a dramatisation of the first commercial radio recording in the world from a Pittsburgh radio station and some rare musical recordings of the time. I hope you enjoy the show. Mr. Pop. That the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Four score and seven years ago. When in the course of human events. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, born January 30th, 1882, died April 12th, 1945, served as President of the United States of America from March 1933 until the day of his death on that 12th of April, 1945. Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. December 7th, 1941, a date which will live 
in infamy. Give me your help not to win votes alone, but to win in this crusade to restore America. My name is David Petrusha, and I'm the author of 1932, The Rise of Hitler and FDR, two tales of politics, betrayal, and unlikely destiny. Franklin Roosevelt is born into a Victorian America, a very different America than 20th century America. The capitalism is largely unfeathered. There is still a aristocracy which he is born into. He comes from a family which has a essentially baronial mansion in the Hudson Valley. The parties are very different. The Republican Party is more big government. His ancestral Democratic Party is more Jeffersonian and limited government. But he's going to change all that when he takes power. Franklin Roosevelt's family is one which is very loving and supportive, particularly his mother, Sarah Delano. Sarah Delano marries James Roosevelt, and it is James Roosevelt's second marriage, her first. He has a child from a previous marriage, 26 years older than Franklin. This is Sarah Delano's only child. And I can tell you from personal experience how loved only children are by their mother. Franklin Roosevelt was loved a great deal by Sarah. She protected him. And actually, James was uh, quite the supportive father and parent as well, despite the usual standoffishness of Victorian fathers. But James Roosevelt dies fairly early in Franklin Roosevelt's life, leaving Franklin as the sole project of his mother. And so he is always being protected by her, taking care of her, and he must take care never to offend her. Franklin Roosevelt is essentially homeschooled for the beginning of his life. Uh, and when he's not homeschooled, he's being schooled not in America, oddly enough, but in Germany. When his father, James, goes off to Germany to take the waters for his health, and Franklin is enrolled for four summers in a German school. He later goes off to Groton. And it's a bit of a culture shock to him. He goes not only to school, really, for the first time in America, but away from home and mother and father. So he doesn't do particularly well at Groton. He's a very mediocre student. He then goes off to Harvard. And again, mediocrity is the key. He's the sixth cousin of the future president, Theodore Roosevelt. And where Theodore Roosevelt is brilliant on every level, Franklin Roosevelt is only brilliant on a couple, but they are very important levels. Politics and charm. But academics, no, not quite that. At Harvard, however, he does become editor of the Harvard Crimson, exercises some leadership in that role. Then he goes off to law school. And again, the pattern is sort of repeated. He goes off to Columbia Law School and he doesn't graduate. Back then, however, you didn't need to graduate from law school to take the bar exam. He studies under some other lawyers and passes it independently and goes off to a career in law, largely in Wall Street, but largely, again, 
completely undistinguished. Franklin Roosevelt first meets his cousin Eleanor at a dance, and he may not remember her, but she certainly remembers him because he asked her to dance. And they marry on March 17th, St. Patrick's Day, in New York, March 17th, 1905. And the date is significant, not because they're Irish, but because they have to keep shifting the date of the wedding back and back to accommodate the man who is going to give Eleanor Roosevelt away because her name is really Eleanor Roosevelt Roosevelt. And the man giving her away is her uncle, Theodore Roosevelt, the president of the United States of America. And as they say... Uh, about Theodore Roosevelt. He wished to be the corpse at every funeral and the bride at every wedding. And he was the big show then. Uh, After the ceremony is over, Franklin will recount to one of his sons, everyone ignored the bride and groom and they rushed over to see Uncle Teddy. presidency helps to redefine the American presidency. After Abraham Lincoln, presidents are essentially weak, more or less passive. They may have some initiatives, but they are in fact chief executives. They serve to execute the policies and laws put forth by the Congress. Theodore Roosevelt changes all that. He changes everything. He is the rough rider. He is literally a cowboy. He's a war hero. He's a reformer in New York City and New York State politics. And he is the trust buster against the monopolies of powerful capitalism, which exists during his term. He inherits the presidency by virtue of assassination of his predecessor, William McKinley. And while McKinley is pro-business, Theodore Roosevelt is very wary of the power of big business and of capitalism and of monopoly. Even though Franklin Roosevelt comes from a very wealthy family and basically enjoys this um, agricultural estate upriver from New York City, he still has to give the semblance of earning a living on his own. So he goes into law, is a very, very junior member of a Wall Street firm, And he puts out a business card, for example, talking about what his services are, which is giving advice, say, to matrons or chloroforming small dogs or something. It's a very jokey card, but his experience in law is very jokey as well. He is just not cut out to be a litigator or a corporate attorney or a great defense attorney. 
He's cut out to be Franklin Roosevelt and for politics and is interested in, in very little else. Theodore Roosevelt retires from the presidency in 1908, but he's still a young man and he's still Theodore Roosevelt. He doesn't like what his hand-picked successor does in office and breaks with him. And when he does, he breaks the entire Republican Party so that it is fractured by 1910. And this is the year when Democrats in the Hudson Valley approach Franklin Roosevelt to run for the New York State Senate seat from the Hyde Park area. Normally, he would not stand any chance whatsoever. But the Republicans and the new Progressive Party are split badly. And what happens is that Franklin Roosevelt scores a tremendous upset and joins the New York State Senate. Now, when he gets there, something very interesting is going to happen. As part of that mix-up in national politics and state politics, the Democrat have seized control of the New York State Legislature. This is important because United States Senators are not chosen by the public at this time. The Constitution has not yet been changed. They are elected by members of the various state legislatures. The Democrat Party in New York State is largely controlled by the crooked political machine Tammany out of Manhattan, out of New York City. They put up a candidate who is, shall we say, not acceptable to the upstate reformers who are now led by this freshman, Franklin Roosevelt. There is a deadlock. Franklin Roosevelt prevents Tammany from getting its way directly, directly. Eventually, they put someone in who's also a choice of theirs. But Franklin Roosevelt can claim victory as a great reformer. Now, along the way, during this battle, he meets a rather seedy-looking but brilliant-in-his-own-way newspaper man called Lewis McHenry Howe. And Howe, well, shall we say, in a nice way, falls in love with Franklin Roosevelt. He determines this is the guy who can be president of the United States of America and hitches his wagon to the Roosevelt star. This is one of the great legacies of a very brief career which Franklin Roosevelt has in the New York State Senate. He's reelected in 1912, largely through Louis Howe's efforts, but he's barely reelected. And if he stays in, he's probably going to be defeated in 1914. 1912, TR is still on the warpath. The great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated briefly. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe in the right of the people to rule. I believe that the majority of the brave people of the United States will day in and day out make fewer mistakes in governing themselves. The Republican Party is still divided. Both Taft, the Republican, William Howard Taft, and Teddy Roosevelt are going to run for office. It's a Republican nation. The majority of the people are Republicans. But this gives a tremendous opportunity to whoever the Democrats are going to nominate. The country is progressive. It wants to move forward on certain reforms. 
such as electing United States senators directly or primaries, uh, election of nominees or trust busting or creating a federal reserve system, etc., etc., etc. The Democrats are going to end up nominating a governor of New Jersey, a professor from Princeton named Woodrow Wilson. He's only going to get about 42, 43% of the votes that year. But that's enough when the Republican Party is split wide open. Now, Franklin Roosevelt, even in this Democratic landslide year, barely gets reelected to his state Senate seat in New York. He's got to get moving on before he gets moving out in 1914. So he jumps fairly jumps at the chance to go to Washington as Woodrow Wilson's assistant secretary of the Navy. Now, aside from the glamour of Washington, aside from the fact that he may be losing his Senate seat in 1914, there's another reason he wants this job. And that's because he's been busy emulating Theodore Roosevelt, his cousin in his political career whether it's uh, in progressive politics or even saying things like bully, like his cousin, Theodore Roosevelt had made his national career as assistant secretary of the Navy before going on to the presidency. And Franklin Roosevelt sees this as his pathway to power as well. Nineteen fourteen, June, Sarajevo, the heir to the throne of Austria-Hungary, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, assassinated, killed by a Serbian nationalist. About six weeks later, world war breaks out. Germany, Austria-Hungary, Russia, France, Britain, everyone is drawn into it starting in August, and then will America be drawn in? Another thing happens in 1914. Franklin Roosevelt, who knew he wasn't going to get reelected to the state Senate simply because of the district, sees an opportunity to move into the United States Senate and wants the nomination of the Democrats to run. Now it's popular election. But he runs into a Tammany candidate. And while he had done pretty well against Tammany, battling them in Albany, they crush him. They absolutely crush him in this primary. Now, what's the importance of this? Well, one, he would have taken a different path in life. Uh, maybe going through the Senate to the presidency, but maybe not. But what he does learn this year, and it's a very, very important lesson, is Tammany is powerful. There's a saying in America, you can't fight City Hall. Well, he learns you can't fight Tammany Hall too directly. He basically makes his peace with them, and that is going to help smooth his career later on. 1916. Woodrow Wilson is up for re-election, and his slogan, he kept us out of war. America doesn't want to go to war. Woodrow Wilson, I'm not sure what he wants to do. Uh, and maybe he's not sure either. But he gets reelected. And maybe America is going to stay out of the war. But one of the things which was bringing America very close to the conflict 
was Germany's policy of unrestricted submarine warfare. Britain had blockaded Germany, causing immense hardship, not only to its war effort, but to its people. And Germany was fighting a very closely run thing, and they knew it. They were always on the edge of disaster. No matter how many successes they had, it always seemed like they were juggling resources and they could be finished at any great moment. So they're always not only arrogant and stupid in their war policies, particularly in regards to United States neutrality, they are desperate. They call off their submarine warfare largely, largely in terms of, of neutral ships and passenger ships to pacify American public opinion in 1916 after the Lusitania is sunk uh, in 1915 that America is very very angry but what happens is in 1917 that policy is reversed the Kaiser gives the okay and um, and Germany is going to resume unrestricted submarine warfare this leads to a break in relations between Washington and Berlin. And then comes the last straw. American relations with Mexico in the Woodrow Wilson administration were horrible. Jovia, one of the revolutionary leaders in Mexico, literally invades uh, New Mexico, kills some Americans, kills Americans in Mexico itself. Wilson sends American troops into Mexico, and it looks like a big conflict could envelop both countries, even while war is going on in Europe. So it's a tinderbox, and the German foreign minister, a fellow named Zimmerman, sends a telegram to Mexico saying, if there is war between the United States and Germany, you guys might want to come into this. We'll give you some help, and you can get back Texas and New Mexico and Arizona and whatever you can grab on your own. British intelligence intercepts this telegram and at the proper moment shares it with the Americans. And that's about all that is needed for America to enter the war in April 1917. America enters the war, but it's not sure how effective American participation is going to be in that conflict. The Germans are counting that it's not going to be effective at all. The American troops will never get across the Atlantic, either because of their lack of preparation and ability or because of the ability for German submarines to sink every ship carrying American troops. But Americans do get across. And once they are across, they are transformed into a very good fighting force and provide the final strength necessary for the Allies to crush Germany. When this happens, peace breaks out. As war breaks out, peace breaks out. 
And peace can be as difficult as war, particularly for the Allies who have very different aims in mind. The French, the British, they have their own concerns. They want to grab certain territories, say in the Middle East or in Africa, or to inflict punishment upon the Germans. Woodrow Wilson, not so much. And there have been conflicts between the Allies and America, most particularly with the case of freedom of the seas. Wilson had wanted this. British do not. They've been implementing blockades. But what the big conflict is going to be, or what the big motive of Woodrow Wilson is going to be at the upcoming peace conference in Paris at Versailles is the League of Nations. He wants to create a structure which is going to maintain world peace. And he will do just about anything he has to to get that League of Nations. Everything he has to except cooperate with the Republican Party stateside, which leads to a complete disaster for Wilson and for the League of Nations and for the Democrats who support that League of Nations in the upcoming 1920 election. of the Westinghouse Electric and Manufacturing Company in East Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We shall now broadcast the election returns. <coughs> we are receiving these returns through the cooperation and by special arrangements with the Pittsburgh Post and Sun. We'd appreciate it if anyone hearing this broadcast would communicate with us as we are very anxious to know how far the broadcast is reaching and how it is being received. 1920. The Democrats have to nominate a successor to Woodrow Wilson. Even though he wants a third term, he's clearly delusional in this. The Democrats end up nominating a rather lackluster governor of Ohio, a fellow named James Middleton Cox for president. They also end up nominating Franklin Delano Roosevelt for vice president. Why? He's young, he's handsome, he's articulate, and he's a Roosevelt. He's also a member of the Wilson administration. Cox had not been. He was an outsider. So they're balancing a lot of things. Franklin Roosevelt, however, is balancing all those positives with the fact that he's not quite ready for prime time. The Franklin Roosevelt of 1920 is not the Franklin Roosevelt of 1936 or even of 1932. He creates certain gaffes and problems in the campaign of 1920. He misspeaks regarding the League of Nations, regarding the relations of America with Latin American countries, and he gets caught in this. Nonetheless, he's made immeasurable contacts. He's met the party leadership across the country and generally made a good impression on them. This is the stepping stone, the first great stepping stone of Franklin Roosevelt to the White House. The year 1920 finds Franklin D. Roosevelt at the threshold of a new career. He began to take a prominent place in councils of his party. 
His keen-minded and progressive thought were eagerly sought on state and national affairs. When the Democrats gathered in San Francisco in July 1920 for their national convention, Roosevelt's name was on many tongues. It was inevitable that he should be nominated for vice president to run with James M. Cox. Enthusiastically, he stumped the country, preaching the ideals of Woodrow Wilson and rallying the party to the support of the Dicks. Wherever he spoke, his vibrant personality and flashing smile made new friends. There was a ring of sincerity in his voice that the people liked and which they never forgot. Loyally and energetically, he fought the stern battle for his chief and for the party. With James M. Cox, he looked on with kindling eyes while San Francisco turned out a great parade in their honor. In defeat, he attains a great deal. 1920 is remembered as the year of the smoke-filled room where Republicans allegedly nominate their candidate, Warren Gamaliel Harding, United States Senator and small town newspaper editor from Ohio, as their man to take the country back and put the country on a return to normalcy. So what happens is the Republican Party is deadlocked for nine straight ballots at its national convention, turning only to this dark horse, Warren Harding, after all its front runners have beaten themselves to a pulp. Now, what happens at the Democratic National Convention in San Francisco is somewhat different. It goes on even longer for them I think it's 24 ballots. The Democrats have a problem in nominating anybody any year because they have a rule that the Republicans don't. The Republican nominee only has to secure a majority of delegates. The Democratic Party has to secure two thirds. So the difference is akin to having a majority vote necessary to pass anything in the United States House of Representatives and two-thirds or 60 votes, however the rules are at any given time, in the United States Senate. So the Democrats are deadlocked. They turned to Mr. James Cox of Ohio and Franklin Roosevelt. But it's a different thing. Uh, it has been said by one observer than what the Republicans do. In the Democratic convention, it was said that yes, it was a boss-ridden convention and the nominees were chosen by the big city bosses of New York City and Chicago and the state boss of Indiana and the boss of New Jersey. But it wasn't in a smoke-filled room. The bossism occurred wide open and in full view of everyone. While we're waiting for the returns to come in over the telephone, direct from the Post and Sun, I'll give you the list of offices in today's presidential election. Here they are. Some 30 million Americans are electing a president of the United States, a vice president, 34 United States senators, 435 members of the House of Representatives, governors of 34 states, and thousands of minor offices, county judges, and officials. <clears throat> okay, those are the offices to be filled. And here are the seven complete presidential tickets that are being voted on. Republican, Warren G. Harding, Calvin Coolidge. Democratic, James M. Cox. 
Franklin Roosevelt is licking his wounds from a very massive defeat in 1920. As 1921 begins, he's, he's reestablishing his, shall we say, civilian life out of government. He's back in New York State. And one thing he does is he goes to a Boy Scout encampment across the Hudson River in New Jersey. And what he does is he picks up, as far as we can tell, as to how these things uh, develop, the bacillus, the germ of polio. It kicks in when he's up north in Canada at his old family home, vacation home in Campobello. He goes into the ocean, uh, comes back, he's chilled. Uh, He notices paralysis in his various limbs, his face even. He's running a 103 degree fever. They're not sure if he's going to survive. They don't know what's wrong with him at all. They bring in a, a visiting doctor from Philadelphia. It's a terrible thing. And it turns out to be polio, which is infantile paralysis, something that usually strikes children, but it strikes him. He's always been up to this point susceptible to any number of diseases, to uh, catching the flu or some sort of something which is going to lay him low. So his immune system may be off on a general basis. This leaves him paralyzed. He eventually gets the use back of his facial muscles, his arms, but never his legs. And the question is, what's to become of him? His mother, Sarah, says, why don't you just stay home, son? Watch the estate, take care of your hobbies, dabble in this or that, and basically give up on all his hopes and dreams. But there's two people pushing him on, especially, and that is Louis McHenry Howe, and that is also Eleanor Roosevelt. They want him to continue on in politics, and more importantly, I think, in life. Franklin Roosevelt is nearly wrecked by polio, and he is saved by death. He is saved by the death of a fellow named Burke Cochran, a noted Tammany orator who ordinarily would have been tapped to nominate New York Governor Al Smith for president in 1944. But Mr. Cochran dies. And Al Smith decides to tap this young Roosevelt fellow to nominate him. He's a good enough speaker, but Smith wants to send the message that he can stand above Tammany and can deal with these patrician reform types in the Democratic Party. Franklin D. Roosevelt must hobble to the platform at New York City's Madison Square Garden. Upon his crutches, his face beaming despite the intense pain he is suffering, the exertion which he must put forward to simply get there, and his bravery energizes this crowd, his grit, They say, look at this man, look at him, what he's doing there. We are just so admiring of this. 
and his words where he describes Alfred E. Smith as the happy warrior set the right tone for that campaign. People start to think of him even though he is crippled by polio, even though he has held no elective office higher than New York State Senator as perhaps as perhaps a future president of the United States of America. And then four years later, when Alfred E. Smith does gain the Democratic nomination for the presidency, he's vacating the governorship of New York. And he says, Frank, he always called him Frank, I want you to run for governor in my place. And Roosevelt doesn't want to do it. He doesn't think the timing is right. Yes, he wants to be president of the United States of America, but he thinks that job is not going to open up until 1936, not until the winner of the 1928 election is served two full terms. Then he can run and he can take his time running in 1928 or 1930 or 1932. But Al Smith puts the pressure on him. And Franklin Roosevelt, even though he doesn't want to run, runs for governor. There is an issue. The issue is, is he physically up to it? And he barnstorms all across upstate New York. And he's mocking his opponents for questioning whether he's up to the job physically. Alfred E. Smith gets crushed by Herbert Hoover in 1928. It's the Roaring Twenties. Life is good. One year, unemployment gets down to 1%. There's virtually no inflation in the country, maybe 2% tops any given year. The gross national product is growing by leaps and bounds. Taxes or tax rates are coming down. Life is good for America. And so Alfred E. Smith loses to Herbert Hoover that year. But while he's losing, Franklin D. Roosevelt wins by an eyelash. He's governor of the state of New York, the most populous, prosperous, and rich and influential state in the union. And suddenly, a front runner for the presidency of the United States of America. Al Smith had made Franklin Roosevelt governor of the state of New York. And he thought he could continue to own him. Smith is crushed by Hoover in the presidential election. But Smith thinks he can continue to control New York state government and politics through Franklin Roosevelt. He underestimates Roosevelt. When he cajoles Roosevelt to run for governor, he tells him, I know you're worried about the polio thing. You can continue to recuperate in Warm Springs, Georgia. Take as much time as you wish. We'll take care of things when you're away. Your Lieutenant Governor Herbert Lehman is a fine man. He can watch out for things. And while you're in Albany, well, I'm gonna take a room at the nearby, down the street, DeWitt Clinton Hotel. 
Anything you need to know, you ask me. Franklin Roosevelt doesn't want to ask Al Smith a damn thing. He wants to be his own man. And Al Smith wants Roosevelt to keep on two key people. One is his secretary, essentially his chief of staff. Her name, yes, her name is Belle Moskowitz, one of the really early female figures of power, real power in American history. And Roosevelt does not want her kept on because he wants someone loyal to him. She goes. This hurts Al Smith a great deal. Smith also wants Roosevelt to keep on his very talented Secretary of State. A Secretary of State and State Government sort of is a catch-all title. It has nothing to do with foreign affairs. They can be handy people to have around in a very nebulous title. And the fellow that Al Smith wants kept on is named Robert Moses, the great creator of infrastructure around New York City, a monumental figure in urban planning in America. But Franklin Roosevelt has long since hated Moses when Moses refused to give a patronage job to Louis McHenry Howe. So he hits the bricks too. And Al Smith gives up that hotel room at the DeWitt Clinton Hotel in Albany, goes back to New York City to build the Empire State Building and to nurse the grudges and wounds he now holds against Franklin Roosevelt. With bar signed with the boys and bums, spending their money, debauching their characters, rotting their bodies, and jeopardizing their immortal souls. The progressive era features not only a bunch of changes in electoral or economic changes in American life, but also moral changes. There are moves against prostitution, drug use, gambling, boxing, horse racing, all sorts of things. And one of them is prohibition, the banning of alcohol. Actually, it's not really banned. The transportation, sale, manufacturer is banned. You can still drink it legally in your home if you want, if you've stockpiled it when Prohibition comes in. And it does come in in 1918. Some say it's because of the war, because the soldiers were away, the boys were away, and it was put over in their absence. Or it was put over because so many of the people manufacturing beer and booze were German-Americans. Not exactly popular in those days. But in any case, it comes in and rather quickly passed by the Congress and then rushed through the states. People are not sure whether it's the uh, new millennium or how it's going to work at all. And it turns out not to work politically or practically well. Um, People like Warren Harding and Calvin Coolidge, who are entrusted with... um, the enforcement of prohibition, are wary about it. There's a question of big government. There's a question of popularity of the act, of its political nature. Um, They do not go, shall we say, with any great enthusiasm for 
uh, enforcing it. One guy who does not have the political sense to stay out of that hornet's nest is Herbert Hoover. And he puts forward a commission to study law enforcement called the Wickersham Act. And this stirs things up in the late 1920s. It's remarkable to think how quickly prohibition comes in in the teens and then how quickly it goes out because it starts to lose steam in popularity big time by 1930. As late as 1928, the United States voting public elects the driest, most prohibition-friendly Congress in history. That's the peak, and it falls off the cliff right afterwards. People will turn against prohibition for a number of reasons. Many simply want to drink. But other people who had supported it are wary of it, become hostile to it, because it leads to large increases in corruption at the federal level among local police and also with the gang violence that results. So we get massacres like the St. Valentine's Day massacre at the end of the 1920s featuring the Al Capone gang and all the rival gangs in Chicago. And the incidents, like say with Mad Dog Call and children, small children being shot by accident on New York City street corners. This disgusts the American people and leads to the demand for repeal. And now a message from our sponsor. Ladies, tired of drying your hair with the same old vacuum cleaner? Try Avon Shade brand new Beauty Locks portable hair dryer. It's smaller, it's faster, it's guaranteed to give you the hair you've always wanted in half the time. Beauty Locks is delicate and dainty just like you. Thanks, Frank, that was swell. I'm glad you liked it, Harry. You know, you're a darn good-looking fellow. I'll bet you have lots of girls crazy about you. Oh, I don't know. I... Oh, you're just being modest. <laughs> Life is good in 1920s America. In fact, for most people, life is great. But there's problems in the economy. Agriculture has been seriously dislocated by World War I. There had been overproduction, overborrowing. And 1920s America never really recovered for that. That is the weak spot in the American economy. But also banks tend to be failing in the 1920s, even in the midst of prosperity. Generally small banks, generally rural banks. But as the 1930s begins, even banks in Franklin Roosevelt's New York State, in New York City, Roosevelt could do more to prevent their failure. He does not. Even when Herbert Lehman calls in the hated Robert Moses to fix the problem, Roosevelt ignores that. That is not to his credit. But the stock market over speculation, the Federal Reserve has been toying with interest rates and causing dislocations in how managers of business 
come up with their investment strategies. And it all comes to crash in October 1929. First on a Thursday, then again on a Tuesday, there are two massive downturns in the New York Stock Exchange and panic is in the streets. Now, is it going to be the Great Depression or is it just going to be eh, a kind of average depression? Nobody knows that. Herbert Hoover doesn't know it. Franklin Roosevelt doesn't know it. And the depression does not happen all at once. It goes down by stages from this crash to moments when taxes are raised or tariffs are raised or uh, there's another wave of bank failures. To my mind, the Great Depression goes downward. The economy goes downward step by step like an evil slinky going down the stairs of a hallway in your home. And when it reaches bottom, then America is ready to turn to new leadership. People lose their jobs in massive numbers. They lose their livelihood and they lose their homes. I can think particularly of one couple that lost their home on Christmas Eve, 1931. My own grandparents foreclosed having to find lodging elsewhere, move from place to place, having to send one daughter off to a farm with a nearby relative, having to send another daughter from upstate New York to relatives in Michigan. And this situation was repeated over and over again. Men, women, and children might be on the move from city to city, looking for work, looking for jobs. Billboards might greet them, which say, homeless men, keep on moving. We can barely take care of ourselves. The incidents where people fight over garbage so they can find some scrap to eat in Chicago, where animals are slaughtered in the zoos because there's no money to maintain these zoos where shanty towns exist in Central Park and a couple is found living in a cave in Central Park in New York City, or where tens of thousands of desperate World War I veterans descend on Washington looking for aid from the federal government to have their bonus payments for service in World War I accelerated from 1945 to 1932. War, the greatest concentration of fighting troops in Washington since 1865. We have a free for the bonus that we're going to get. In 
Washington to get my bones, and I'm going to wait for till I get if I have to wait till 1945. Oh, I ought to beat the Undertaker, spend the money before the Undertaker gets it. This is the greatest demonstration of Americanism we've ever had. The orders of the president must be obeyed. And the roaring flames sound the death knell to the fantastic bonus army. In the shadow of the beautiful dome of the capital of the United States of America. With shadows I spend it all. My By 1932, not only the country's economy is cooked, so is Herbert Hoover's political goose. He had come in as the great engineer, the wonder worker, the great humanitarian, the wonder boy, as his predecessor Calvin Coolidge, not really admiringly, had said of him. And he had also come in promising that America's problem with poverty might be about solved, that there would be a chicken in every pot, a car in every garage. And instead, people are lucky to be living in a garage. Things are now called Hoover carts. If you have a car which is being hauled by a donkey or a horse because the engine doesn't work anymore, or you might be living in a Hooverville, uh, which would be a shanty town. He is the object of derision. And while he had been a great business leader and had saved millions of lives from starvation during World War One and afterwards, and had been quite a notable Secretary of Commerce under Presidents Harding and Coolidge, he is a remarkably uninspiring leader in a crisis as far as a politician goes. He is not the laissez-faire, do-nothing president that, oh, decades of students learned about. He was actually doing many things to ameliorate the Great Depression. Uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt's key advisor, member of the Brains Trust, a guy named Rexford Tugwell, admits that much of what the New Deal did was based upon Hoover's efforts to deal with the Great Depression. But these things really don't work for Hoover. He might have public works projects. He has more public works projects in three years of the Great Depression, four years of his uh, administration, than in the previous 30 years of the entire federal government. So he's doing things. He's issuing loans to business through the Reconstruction Finance Committee. He's aiding agriculture through agricultural boards and trying to keep prices up. But nothing, nothing really works for him. One observer said, if you put a rose in Herbert Hoover's hands, it would wilt. Nineteen thirty-two. Franklin Roosevelt certainly wants to be president, but to get there, he has to get the Democratic nomination. And how is that going to happen? In nineteen thirty, he is re-elected governor of New York, and it is by the largest margin up to that point in history. 
Al Smith had been damn popular as governor of New York State, but Franklin Roosevelt exceeds any margin that Smith had won by. So the next day, Will Rogers, the great comedian and commentator, says the Democrats nominated their 1932 presidential candidate the night before, and his name is Franklin D. Roosevelt. And he's pretty much on to something. Roosevelt boasts a bit of an organization which is sophisticated for its times. He has a guy named James A. Farley, who is a smart, savvy Democratic operative from upstate New York to go around the country and sound things out. He has Louis McHenry Howe strategizing. For a decade now, they've been sending out letters under uh, Franklin Delanor Roosevelt's signature. He is, he's not necessarily seen any of them, but he's keeping in touch with people around the country in the Democratic Party. And also Eleanor Roosevelt is assisting. And Roosevelt has compiled this brain's trust of people like Rexford Tugwell and Raymond Moley, professors from the good schools who are going to provide his campaign with some intellectual muscle. There's a dictum that you can't beat somebody with nobody. And Franklin Roosevelt, as the campaign starts out, is running against a bunch of nobodies. This is more than a political campaign. It is a call to arms. Give me your help not to win votes alone, but to win in this crusade to restore America to its own people. He's running against the governor of Maryland, Albert Ritchie, who's a real Jeffersonian, limited government, states' rights sort of guy, but who really has no idea how to get the presidency. He's running against the governor of Oklahoma, a guy named Alfalfa Bill Murray, who is, shall we say, controversial and uh, wants to get Oklahoma into a border war with Texas over bridge tolls. And besides, who can take a guy named Alfalfa Bill seriously for the presidency? So that's his competition at first. There are some dark, dark horses who may come in, but they don't care enough to come in directly. In January 1932, William Randolph Hearst, the great American press mogul, gets on the radio and excoriates just about everyone in national politics. Al Smith, Herbert Hoover, Woodrow Wilson, who's dead, Franklin Roosevelt. But he likes one guy, the Speaker of the House, John Nance Gardner, and says, this is a great American. He should be president. And Gardner says, well, okay, if someone people are talking about it, I guess I'll sort of run. And then Al Smith's hurt feelings kick into gear. And he runs. So he's running basically just to thwart Franklin Roosevelt. And Garner is running, well, just because Hearst said so. Roosevelt continues to pile up delegates for about the first half of the year, up until about May. And then the wheels start falling off the car. Roosevelt has been warned not to go into the Massachusetts primary, but he's riding high. He's got a big head after winning a couple primaries in northern New England, 
and he faces Al Smith directly. The thing about Massachusetts is its Democrats are largely Irish and Catholic, like Al Smith, and they love Al Smith. And Smith crushes the unstoppable, inevitable Roosevelt in that primary, and then goes on to capture state conventions in Connecticut and New Jersey. And Roosevelt underperformed seriously in the big state of Pennsylvania. Garner captures the delegates in Texas. And there is a primary finally in California, as there always is. There's a flyer distributed during that California primary campaign, which says, if you are dry, meaning for prohibition, vote Garner. If you are wet, meaning for repeal, vote Smith. If you don't know where you stand, vote for Roosevelt. Obviously, a number of people knew where they stood, and Franklin Roosevelt did not win that primary. Because of that two-thirds rule at the Democratic convention, he still has a majority of delegates, but he needs two-thirds. And what's his path to get there? One ballot, two ballots, three ballots, four ballots. And if he doesn't get it soon, as James Farley tells the California delegation, it's going to go somewhere else. It's going to go somewhere where you don't want it to go. And other people are saying the same thing. Financier Joseph P. Kennedy. Yes, that Joe Kennedy is also on the phone also with that message. He's on the phone to William Randolph, Hearst in California, who really controls that California delegation saying, switch to Roosevelt. I know you're not that crazy about him, but if you don't go with Roosevelt, you're going to get someone much worse. You're going to get Newton D. Baker. <gasps> Hearst goes, not Newton D. Baker. He hated Newton D. Baker. He was Secretary of War under Woodrow Wilson, a quintessential Wilsonian, and Hearst hated everything about Wilson, and he really hated Baker. And Herbert Hoover feared Baker and thought he would be the toughest nominee of the Democrats and thought that Franklin Roosevelt would be the easiest person to be. Hearst throws his votes in California to Roosevelt and essentially orders Speaker Garner to get out of the race. The deal is cut. Roosevelt gets the nomination, and Al Smith leaves Chicago in a huff. What's our campaign slogan, Sidney? Happy days are here again. Good, that's right. Happy days are Democratic Party has delivered the nomination to Franklin Roosevelt, and things look good for him, even if he does nothing spectacular. And many people are expecting him to do nothing spectacular. But his first move catches the imagination of the public. The previous tradition of American politics and of presidential politics was that the nominee would not necessarily even be at the convention. And he would not give his acceptance speech for some time, some weeks afterwards. 
So Woodrow Wilson might give his acceptance speech at Seagirt, New Jersey, or Warren Harding at Marion, Ohio, or Calvin Coolidge at Northampton, Massachusetts. Roosevelt, by right, should have given his at Hyde Park in a few weeks, as he had given his acceptance in 1920 for the vice presidential nomination. But no, he's up in Albany, he gets the word on the radio, and he boards a very small, I think it's about 14-passenger mail plane at the Albany airport, gets in it, and flies to the convention in Chicago breaking all tradition and exciting the public. Now we may say, well, what's the big deal about that? This is five years after Lindbergh. Aviation is still pretty dicey. In fact, it takes him nine hours to fly from Albany to Chicago, which doesn't beat driving by, you know, all that much. Uh, And he has to even stop twice in Buffalo and in Cleveland. Then when he gets there, there is this massive parade where all the people who had not been for him pretend to have always been for him. And gets there, stands before the crowd and says, I pledge to you a new deal for the American people. Now, the phrase a new deal had been around for a while. It had been used by speakers very recently, even in that convention, in the new, in the Republican convention. There were books and magazine articles using that phrase. But somehow, when he says it, it catches fire. And I think that's part of what you have to know about Franklin Roosevelt. He's not very original in a lot of ways. He will copy a lot of the Hoover approach whether it's aid to business or public works or aid to the farmers, etc., etc. And he will not originate his own speeches. He has those brain trusters and a guy named Sam Roseman who are writing this stuff. But he has the ability to punch up the speeches, to know what will work, and to deliver them in a particularly masterful way, not only in person, on the stump, but particularly, as we will see with his fireside chats on the radio and to reach the entire nation. Cabinet of the Democratic Party for the office of President of the United States, Franklin D. Roosevelt. You have adopted here in Chicago the slogan, I will. That slogan of yours for the period of the campaign. It expresses the determination that we shall not permit the ogre of depression to defeat us. Hopeful and united with a firm belief that our program is strong enough for the emergency to come, join me in that watchword, I will. Having given his New Deal speech at the Democratic National Convention, there's still a campaign to be run. It's not the campaign that we know today, that style. He only makes a couple of big trips around the country and some short ones. By the standards of today's campaign, it's pretty modest, but he's still out there. He's still winning, and he crushes, absolutely crushes Herbert Hoover that November, in part because Al Smith has come back into the fold. The anti-Roosevelt people have come into the fold. He has the support of various factions of the party. He has the conservatives, the financiers like Joe Kennedy and 
Bernard Baruch. He gives one speech in Pittsburgh, which is quite remarkable. It is not only to the right of Herbert Hoover, it's probably to the right of Calvin Coolidge. His platform calls for cutting the federal budget by 25%, cutting out waste and bureaucracy, etc., etc. And on the other hand, he's balancing the support of outright radicals, left-wing radicals like Senator Huey Long of Louisiana and the radio priest, Father Charles Coughlin, of Michigan. He's got all these people behind him, and he's going to take it to Herbert Hoover and carry all but six states in the Electoral College. He has a mandate for change. In 1932, Herbert Hoover carries only three groups, the rich, and there's fewer of them in 1932, Northeastern rural residents, and African-Americans, blacks. Uh, That's gonna change very rapidly. There are some policies which are actually going to increase uh, black unemployment in the early New Deal, the AAA, for example, uh, throws some sharecroppers off the land and the raise in minimum wages early on. But this is more than compensated for in terms of, of shifting votes to the Democratic Party by the massive relief efforts of the uh, early New Deal. So that by 1936, the black vote, has, which has been historically Republican since Lincoln, now is Democratic and is going to stay there. There's a gigantic paper mache sphinx with his face and cigarette holder on it. And he loved it. He had it sent to him by the National Press Club, which had created it. And it was indicative of the fact that he wore a mask so often. I think more and more historians are recognizing how secretive and in many ways duplicitous he could be. You went away thinking... He was on your side, but he really wasn't. You weren't quite sure what he was going to do. And the greatest thing he wore a mask about was his infirmity, his paralysis, his polio. He had to do this politically. Louis McHenry Howe said if word ever got out about this, he was finished. This was early in the 20s. You see some of the early newsreels where he's on crutches. That stops after about 1924. You never see the crutches. He hides it very well. As Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany wore a cape to hide his withered arm, Franklin Roosevelt wore a cape to cover those crutches. He cut his trousers, the length of them, very long to hide the braces that he wore, which should have been shiny metal, but were painted black to disguise them. He often would dried up 
in an automobile right onto a platform to address people and address them from a sitting position. When he moved about or had to move about, he was supported maybe by his son or secret service agents and could feign walking, sort of being propped up one step after another by himself or by others. When he reviews his inaugural parade in 1933, He's seated, seated on a very high chair, specifically to give the illusion that he is standing for this. He writes many times to politicians in the 20s that he may walk with a cane. He doesn't use a wheelchair, etc., etc. He hopes that he'll be better in a couple years. In some ways, these things are true, but in the aggregate, in the bigger picture, they are not true at all. And he's fooling them, and he's fooling the public. And in some ways, I think he's also fooling himself, always saying, in a couple more years, I'll be better. And I don't begrudge him for that, because false hope is far, far better than real despair. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Franklin Roosevelt's inauguration takes place in as dramatic a circumstance as perhaps any president's since Lincoln's. When the Union is falling apart, America's falling apart in March 1933. Herbert Hoover had beseeched Roosevelt to assist with him in closing the banking system down, to give it a moratorium so they could sort out the good banks from the bad. And Franklin Roosevelt does not cooperate with that. He doesn't want ownership of Herbert Hoover's portion of the Great Depression. And so when Franklin Roosevelt arrives in Washington, a lot of the banks are closed anyway. The governor of Pennsylvania, Gifford Pinchot, arrives with about 75 cents or some minuscule amount in his pockets and is wondering how he's going to pay his bills. The hotels will not accept checks. Eleanor Roosevelt is wondering how they are going to pay their bills in Washington before they move into, shall we say, the public housing at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. So things are a mess. And there are troops ringing Pennsylvania with machine guns to protect the atmosphere and to make sure that things do not go wrong, that disorders do not break out, because not long afterwards, the city had been, in some sense, occupied by tens of thousands of bonus marchers. You weren't sure what America was coming to. Nineteen thirty-three. Franklin Roosevelt is about to be president, but he might never really get there, even though he's won a landslide victory, because he takes a fishing trip on a yacht off the coast of Florida, 
and stops in Miami for another campaign address. Even though the campaign is won, and as he sits in his car, an Italian immigrant, Giuseppe Zangara, pulls out a revolver and fires once, twice, again and again and again. Franklin Roosevelt could have died that day. Instead, a bullet hits the mayor of Chicago, Anton Cermak. Anton Cermak says, I'm glad it was me and not you. When the first shot was fired, I realized he was shooting at someone, and my, I take my right arm and pushed the pistol up just as hard as I could. Franklin Roosevelt will go on to become president. Justice, my friends, this is a day of national consecration, and I am certain that on this day my fellow Americans expect that on my induction into the presidency, I will address them with a candor and a decision which the present situation of our people impels. This is preeminently the time to speak the truth, the whole truth, frankly, and boldly, nor need we shrink from honestly facing conditions in our country today. This great nation will endure, will revive, and will prosper. So first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. The nation demands action. In 1933, it needs action. I shall ask the Congress for the one remaining instrument to meet the crisis. Broad executive power to wage a war against the emergency as great as the power that would be given to me if we were in fact invaded by a foreign foe. And it needs hope. Roosevelt is a great provider of hope. The fireside chats. Time. The hour for another fireside chat by the president. I stand all for by my refusal to accept as a necessary condition of our future a permanent army of unemployed. I do not want to think that it is the destiny of any American to remain permanently on relief rolls. The steering oratory. He closes the banks and he knows how to bill it where Hoover builds a moratorium, which is a big Washington policy-type word, Franklin Roosevelt has a bank holiday. What could be more festive and happy than a bank holiday, even when you can't get your money out of the bank for several days? Fear is vanishing, and confidence is growing on every side. But such rhetoric works, and he's got a Democratic Congress overwhelmingly to work with. And in those first 100 days of his administration, they pass 15 major pieces of legislation, basically setting the stage for what is called the first New Deal, where it's going to be 
public works and reform of the financial institutions, and last but not least, the repeal of prohibition. Franklin Roosevelt gets the credit for repealing prohibition. It was going to happen anyway. Uh, That train was just not leaving the station anymore uh, for the prohibition forces. But that happens. And the one reason why it happens, aside from all the other reasons, is America wants revenue. It needs revenue. And the ability to tax booze and beer is a powerful one. We think that that is going to help power the federal government. And in fact, for the first four years of the New Deal, excise taxes, taxes on such things, outpaced the federal income tax and the corporate tax. Roosevelt's brain trusters devise a whole series of what are called either admiringly or derisively the alphabet agencies. The WPA, the PWA, the AAA, the NRA, or the CCC. And they do a wide variety of things, all designed to get the economy up and up and rolling in one form or another. The WPA uh, uh, creates public works, putting millions of people to work. Uh, like four million people are going to go on the public payroll for public works programs within a, within a series of months. Imagine this happening today. The AAA continues, which is the Agricultural Administration Act, continues Herbert Hoover's policies regarding aiding farmers. What it does, it's very, very, very controversial. Americans are hungry in the cities. They're scrounging for food. But what happens is to help the farmers and support farm prices, they plow under corn. They slaughter millions of piglets. This does not always go over well. They send out 100,000 inspectors to enforce this program. It's not among the most popular or well thought out programs in New Deal history. The National Industrial Recovery Act or the National Recovery Act is essentially a cartelization of business where four or five hundred industry associations are formed. They're going to send up set up standards for production and work and pricing. And God help you if you violate these. It goes down to such things as dry cleaners so that a dry cleaner in New Jersey who is undercutting the prices by a nickel of the code members in that area because he has a lousy location and has to entice people to come a few blocks over to his place is essentially jailed later on. And where the there are some kosher poultry dealers in Brooklyn who are nailed by the NRA for violating that code. And what had they done which was so egregious? Well, the code said that the customer could not pick out his own live chicken. (laughs) You had to give out a chicken at random. And that was the level of control of this agency. Yet it was remarkably popular at first. It had a symbol called the Blue Eagle reminded some people of fascist uh, symbology and a fellow leading it who said this was the greatest thing since Jesus Christ and uh, eventually had to be fired. But that's how that went. The Civilian Conservation Corps sends hundreds of thousands of young men out into the woods to do reclamation work 
to spruce up national parks and do all sorts of things outdoors. Gives them a square deal, gets them from the city to the countryside. Perhaps the most popular of New Deal programs. I need not emphasize for you what this period of work with helpful surroundings with Peoria, sunshine and adequate food has done for these young men, giving them confidence in themselves. And a regional program Franklin Roosevelt had always been interested in public power, utilities, electric power, and rates. And he takes over a series of projects which the federal government had hanging on in the Tennessee Valley, dating from World War I, turns it into the Tennessee Valley Authority, which provides subsidized power. It never turns a profit, never works that way, into three-state area around the state of Tennessee, also Kentucky and Alabama, which continues really until this day. The gigantic Norris Dam comes to the winter a step nearer completion. The staccato echoes of clattering machines and the shouts of thousands of busy workmen have resounded through the valley of the Clinch River for nearly two years as work has been rushed forward to complete one of the country's largest power and reservoir dams by 1936. Built of huge cement blocks, the walls of the new dam tower into the sky like mighty modern pyramids. This great dam and hydroelectric plant will harness the raging spring floodwaters of the Clinch and Tennessee rivers. Water will be provided for irrigation purposes in the Tennessee Valley for years to come. The hydroelectric plant will furnish light and power to thousands of homes. The one word most applicable to the Great Depression is simply unemployment joblessness. Almost no unemployment in the 1920s, only about 3% as the Great Depression strikes and then up and up and up to 23, 24% in the final days of the Hoover administration. And then thanks to either a normal recovery, the cycle starting to work, and there's some indications that things were starting to turn around even before Franklin Roosevelt takes power, but what happens is the unemployment rate starts to sink down from 24 to 21 to 19 to 16 percent. New York City, federal jobs for thousands at the rate of 100 a minute. I've been out of work for three years. I have a wife and three children. I'm on the 8th Main Street, New York, tomorrow morning, 9 o'clock. Municipal building, Mullahall, Brooklyn, tomorrow morning, 9 o'clock. Now, 16%, 17% is still a horrible figure, but it still translates into millions more people having jobs than in those darkest days of 32-33. The other programs of federal relief have provided help to people who are not finding work and also removing, most importantly, the element of fear. The, the only, only thing, thing we, we have, have to fear is fear itself. And when you have provided that safety cushion, that safety net to people, all of a sudden, things look a lot better to them. They have hope. The nation seems to be moving forward, or at least we no longer seem to be falling headlong into the abyss. If we have not entirely turned things around, at least we are not falling any longer into that fiery pit.
gently low When the world is cold I will feel a glow Just thinking of you And the way you Time ago, a million years BC, the best things in life were absolutely free. But no one appreciated a sky that was always blue, and no one congratulated a moon that was always new. America had never known a first lady like Eleanor Roosevelt. Woodrow Wilson's first lady had actually run the country following World War I, but she had done it quietly. Eleanor Roosevelt goes out to the countryside and becomes the legs of Franklin Roosevelt. Where he cannot go, she goes into coal mines and fields and union halls, into sharecroppers' homes. She's just about everywhere. She writes a daily column. She addresses the American public on the radio. She holds news conferences. It's really quite a remarkable performance by her. And in many ways, even though her relationship with her husband personally is incredibly difficult, they are political partners. She tests the waters, how far he can go. He knows he has to be the president of all the people, not just the liberals. He has to be the president of the northerners, the southerners, the whites, the blacks, the rich, the poor. He's got to bring them together in some ways, or at least keep 51% on board. Eleanor Roosevelt is going to test those liberal waters. And in doing so, she's going to transform the office of first lady. January 30th, 1933, a torchlight parade through the streets of Berlin declared to the world that Adolf Hitler had become Chancellor of Germany. After many attempts to gain control of the country's Depression-era government, Hitler had finally succeeded. His National Socialist Party, the Nazis, had legally formed a coalition government with the Conservatives after a month of secret meetings. The Conservatives, led by former Chancellor Franz von Papen, believed they would be able to moderate Hitler's extremism. They would find out how wrong they were. Nazism and fascism would soon rule Germany. There's an interesting parallel in the history of Franklin Roosevelt, and the parallel jumps across the Atlantic to Germany to the career of someone very different than him, to Adolf Hitler. They both run for the presidency in 1932. They take power in 1933. They expire within weeks of each other in 1945. And Franklin Roosevelt always has his eye on Germany. He had spent four summers there as a boy when his father would visit the spa in Germany to take the waters to recover his health. Franklin Roosevelt goes to school there. He does not develop a particular admiration for the Germans. Recently, in visiting Hyde Park, I was told that they had discovered Franklin Roosevelt's personal copy of 
Mein Kampf, written in English from 1933. It was very interesting. Now, I have many books which I have not read. Perhaps Franklin Roosevelt had not read this, but yes, he had, because they had found notations in the margin. He had read it, he had marked it up, and he said, there are portions missing here. They've left stuff out. They've sugar-coated it, basically, as he says. Now, how would he know that? I would suspect that based on his knowledge of German, that he had actually read it in an earlier version in German. And this tells us not only his linguistic abilities, but that he might not be quite the lightweight at that point in time that a lot of his liberal critics, like the columnist Walter Lippmann or the columnist Haywood Brune or any number of people thought he was. He had his eye on the ball and the eye on the ball in Germany for quite a while. But being the fox, he was not about to do anything about it for the longest time. During his election campaign, William Randolph Hearst had blasted the League of Nations and Franklin Roosevelt to curry the needed support from Hearst well before the convention fairly runs away from the Wilsonian concept of the League of Nations, says that's not going to be an issue in this campaign or going forward. And he signs on to all the neutrality acts and all the isolationist measures of the 1930s, never really says much of a peep about them. But he is ready for action in the late 1930s when Britain faces its darkest moments. The 1930s and dictators are on the march. Tanks, motorized equipment, and one of our own inventions, the dive bomber. All this rearmament was strictly illegal, according to the Versailles Treaty. And the next illegal step Hitler took was to march his troops into the Rhineland, a strip of land between Germany and France, demilitarized after the last war as a precaution against future German aggression. So Hitler remilitarized the Rhineland and began building the formidable Siegfried Line, a chain of forts and defenses 450 miles long and in some places 30 miles wide. Germany had fought one two-front war and didn't want another. Hitler moves into the Rhineland and then an Anschluss with Austria taking over that country. The Munich Agreement where he gets the Sudetenland and then gobbles up the rest of Czechoslovakia in one form or another. In Spain, a civil war between nationalists and loyalists. Italy moves into Abyssinia. In Asia, it's Imperial Japan. As early as 1931, they're moving into Manchuria, creating a puppet state, and then on to China itself. The world is ablaze, but America, still wary of its involvement in World War I, is determined to not get sucked into it again. They pass one neutrality act after another. America will stand for America first and will not send its boys into war again gladly. FDR's policies have proven wildly popular. Democrats gain in the off-year election of 1934 for Congress. And then in 1936, Roosevelt must face re-election. There's a thunder on the right and on the left. On the right, a large segment 
of influential people in the Democratic Party, led by Al Smith, join in the, in the Liberty League to criticize his policies from a conservative standpoint. On the left, it's Senator Huey Long with his Share Our Wealth campaign and Father Charles Cogman, who wants Roosevelt to go further to the left. Long may face Roosevelt in that 1936 election, but he is assassinated in 1935 at Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Roosevelt will face the Republicans one-on-one in 1936. They ultimately nominate the governor of Kansas, a mild progressive named Alfred Landon. The polls, or at least the big poll, predicts that Landon is going to beat Roosevelt, the famed Literary Digest poll. It is famously, infamously wrong. Roosevelt carries 46 out of 48 states. The Republicans retain only two of the smallest states, Maine and Vermont. Roosevelt now has a mandate as no president ever has far outstripping that he had in 1932. And the question is, where does he go from here? For nearly four years now, you have had an administration has rolled up its sleeves. And I can assure you that we will keep our sleeves rolled up. We had to struggle with the old enemies of peace, business and financial monopoly, speculation, reckless banking, class antagonism, war profiteering. They had begun to consider the government of the United States as a mere appendage to their own affairs. And we know now that government by organized money is just as dangerous as government by organized mobs. Never before in all our history have these forces been so united against one candidate as they stand today. They are unanimous in their hate for me and I welcome their hatred. New Deal, which is basically to deal with the Depression. And there's a second New Deal, which is to deal with his critics on the left, and also to deal with more basic questions of how do Americans handle certain issues of, well, social security. And they deal with it through the Wagner Act, which is going to provide for disability insurance and old age pensions and unemployment insurance to protect people's incomes either in old age or times of unemployment. You also, another measure which is enacted at that time is the National Labor Relations Act, which is going to do two things. One, it's going to create the impetus for greater unionization of the American working public 
Union membership had fallen off dramatically during the prosperity of the 1920s, fallen off more so during the depths of the Great Depression. And thanks to this act, it's going to pick up dramatically in the late 30s. Now, it does that on a basic level, but it's also going to create a wave of strikes and labor stoppages of the occupation of factories and really slow down the recovery from the depression. So that whereas you had in 1936 a unemployment rate of 16 to 17%, you're going to see that raise from 1937 and 14% bump up to 18, 19, 20% in 1938-39, which raises, of course, the question of just how successful the New Deal was in dealing with the Great Depression's unemployment problems, when on aggregate, the best you can say, is unemployment during the decade was at best 14% in any given year. Tonight, sitting at my desk in the White House, I make my first radio report to the people in my second term of office. I'm reminded of that evening in March, four years ago, when I made my first radio report to you. We were then in the midst of the great banking crisis. Soon after, with the authority of the Congress, we asked the nation to turn over all of its privately held gold, dollar for dollar, to the government of the United States. Today's recovery proves how right that policy was. But when almost two years later, it came before the Supreme Court, its constitutionality was upheld only by a five to four vote. The change of one vote would have thrown all the affairs of this great nation back into hopeless chaos. What is my proposal? It is simply this. Whenever a judge or justice of any... 1936, Franklin Roosevelt is essentially master of the American political universe. He's got the Congress, he's got the Senate, he's got the House, he's got, got the American people. He's got almost everything he wants, but not quite. The Supreme Court strikes down the NRA, the National Recovery Act. It strikes down the AAA, the Agricultural Adjustment Act. Roosevelt is infuriated. You can see this in one of the newsreels where he can barely control himself. Usually he is so ebullient and in adversity, he will just laugh it off, but not then. He wants his revenge on the Supreme Court. And this leads to the court packing scheme where he is going to ask for the power to add additional justices to the Supreme Court if a member reaches the age of 70 because he has such concern for their health and ability to continue on that he wants to make sure that the work is carried on efficiency from the Supreme Court. But of course, what he really wants is to restructure it and to pack the Supreme Court. Neither the American public nor the Congress wants to go along with this. And he's facing problems with the Congress on other levels as well. So that in the 1938 midterms, 
he does something which hasn't been done before or since. He determines to purge not just members of the opposition party, but of his own party and powerful people, powerful political or committee chairs from office. And he picks out 10 members of Congress, nine senators, one congressman. And in American baseball parlance, he bats 100. He only knocks out the congressman, a fellow from New York City, and every single senator survives. It is a tremendous flop combined with the failure of the court packing scheme. This is really showing that not everything that Franklin Roosevelt wants, Franklin Roosevelt is going to get. This may help slow him down when war strikes in Europe. He has been chastened. He will learn from these dual setbacks and he's not about to get ahead of the public and public opinion or the Congress in terms of American involvement in World War II. Hitler and Stalin sign their pact. Nazi threats rise to a scream. Peace hangs in the balance. This time the story of Austria and Czechoslovakia will not be repeated. This time force will be met by force. And Britain and France will stand by their ally. At dawn on September the 1st, the German war machine steamrollers into Poland. The German Air Force begins its systematic bombing of undefended cities and towns of helpless women and children. Poland's agony has come. Against an overwhelming force, Poland's brave sons go to their death. France mobilizes her mighty army, pours six million men towards the Maginot Line. As Britain's gigantic war machine swings to full speed, the Nazi attack is swept aside on every front. The convoy system protects our mighty seaborne trade. That trade soon also includes America, as President Roosevelt signs the cash and carry bill. We have the money and the ships. They have goods we want. Britain and France sweep the skies over the battlefields too. In one day, Allied airmen bring down 12 German machines. Put that in your pipe and smoke it, Field Marshal Goering. September 1st, 1939, German armies march on Poland. Two days later, France, Britain declare war on Nazi Germany. And what's America going to do about it? Maybe we can stay out. There's going to be a Sitzkrieg, a phony war. Maybe things will just blow over. Maybe just Poland will be the victim of it all. But Hitler moves north to Denmark, Norway, into the Benelux countries, the Low Countries and then overruns France. Britain stands alone, the Blitz. Roosevelt wants to help, but he knows America, the America First movement, which is not necessarily a conservative or a Republican movement, stands opposed. He gives speeches where he will, I will not send your boys off into war again. He makes that pledge. He says, I hate war. Eleanor hates war. It is very much akin to Woodrow Wilson, and he kept us out of war in 1916 and in 1917. We are in war. So some of the tides of history are moving towards war, and Franklin Roosevelt is moving even faster, or as fast as he can. He meets with Winston Churchill, confers with him, 
even when we are not at war, even when we are ostensibly neutral. We become involved in an undeclared naval war in the North Atlantic with German submarines after an incident uh, where we are protecting British naval convoys. There is the Lend-Lease Act, which provides massive amount of aid to Britain, the Soviet Union, and other countries fighting Nazi Germany. So America is a very unneutral neutral under Franklin Roosevelt. But the tides for isolationism, led by that America First movement, Charles Lindbergh, the socialist Norman Thomas, the young Kennedy brothers, Joe Kennedy, future president Gerald Ford, it's fairly widely based that America may wish to uh, the allies, but not necessarily go to war. The 1940 presidential election worker in the country, farmers, bank presidents, streetcar conductors, dentists, teachers, clerks, mechanics, even unskilled laborers, work three months of every year to pay for what government spends. I am willing to pay taxes to provide national defense for my country, to see that we have an army, a navy, and airplanes strong enough to protect us against any invader. Every American agrees that our country's defenses must be so strong that no nation would dare attack us. We don't want what has happened in Europe to happen here. Let us not forget the lesson taught by Europe's agony. We all know that England and France tried the easy way. That France under Premier Léon Blum had a new deal similar to our new deal. And that today the French people have paid in blood and sorrow the price for that fatal experiment. This was the 1940 Republican National Convention in Philadelphia, which began with the usual presidential nominations, but ended in a revolutionary political upset. So with earnestness and confidence, we ask you to nominate as the Republican candidate for the presidency, Thomas E. Dewey of New York. New York's racket-busting Thomas Dewey had come to the convention with more pledged delegates than any other candidate. Political pros assumed that Dewey's only competition would come from the next nominee. So it was, or seemed to be, a two-man race between Dewey and Robert Taft. Also named was a political unknown. I say I want to place in nomination before this great independent body the name of the next president of the United States, Wendell Lewis Wilkins. Coming from nowhere, Wendell L. Wilkie, an Indiana-born New York lawyer, a man who agreed with the aims of Roosevelt's New Deal, but not its tactics, rose to challenge the frontrunners of his own party. An upset was in the making. The poll has taken in Michigan, which I am now announcing, is as follows. Hoover 1, Tad 2, Wilkie 35. Mr. Chairman, Pennsylvania cast 72 votes for Wendell Wilkie. 
After six ballots, the impossible happened. Here, Speaker Martin announces one of the greatest upsets in the history of the convention system. Wilkins' spontaneous victory stands high among the political milestones of the century. Franklin Roosevelt faces a successful businessman who you weren't sure what his ideology was before or even what his party was. And that is the Indiana native Wendell Wilkie turned Wall Street utilities attorney. He had helped fight the TVA, the Tennessee Valley Authority, and turns on Roosevelt's economic policies. He does, however, support Britain and aid to Britain, so much so that Roosevelt is going to send him as an envoy on a personal level, so much so that Roosevelt is going to send Wendell Wilkie to Britain to be his personal envoy to Winston Churchill after the election is over. But the election itself sees Roosevelt upend American political tradition yet again. The tradition from George Washington on was no third term for an American president. When Teddy Roosevelt tries it in 1912, it doesn't work. When Woodrow Wilson toys with it in 1920, it certainly doesn't work. When U.S. Grant tried it, it didn't work. For Franklin Roosevelt, it works. And it may have been the fact that we were facing war, facing an international crisis that helps pull him over because the economy had gone backward in 1939-40. But he defeats Wilkie, gets his third term, And again, he learns from the past. He learns from setbacks. Where Woodrow Wilson had turned his back on Republicans, aiding his League of Nations, aiding the war effort in World War I, Roosevelt turns to people like Wendell Wilkie to get on board his team. He brings in people like Stimson as uh, Secretary of War, Henry Stimson a Republican from the Taft administration to be part of his cabinet. He brings in Frank Knox, a Republican Chicago newspaper editor who had been vice presidential candidate against him in 1936 to be part of the war team. He's going to foster national unity, not national division, when the Japanese strike on December 7th 1941. America prepares. All America alters its pattern of life and work to meet the demand for protection. Industry is a double step to supply the sinews of safety, the armaments of war that an embattled world must have if democracy is to survive. Mechanical genius joins with the muscle of millions of men, working to win for the ways of freedom, freedom to think, to speak, to rise, live and plan with one's fellow man. War is sweeping the world in Europe and the Far East, America is not sure what to do. It wants to stay at peace and uninvolved. 
But Franklin D. Roosevelt knows what side he's on, and it's on the side of an embattled Britain. But he cannot bring America into the war. What he can do is to get around the Neutrality Acts passed in the 1930s, which would keep us out of war, keep us from being too close to Britain. But he goes in a 180-degree turn. Britain is tapped out. It's just about broke in 1940 and 1941. FDR is going to funnel in billions of dollars of war supplies to Britain on, say, the installments plan, even better than the installment plan. He will come out with the destroyers plan, uh, where he will give 50 overage American destroyers to Britain in exchange for bases in the Western Hemisphere, which in a way is also a plus for Britain because it no longer has to man those. Then, even more significantly, Lend-Lease. Billions of dollars is going to be lent to Britain to be paid back or the supplies will be given to them and returned at war's end. FDR uses the analogy that it's like neighbor's house next door is on fire and you lend him the garden hose and then he puts the fire out and returns it when everything is fine. Now, of course, how Britain is to return all those tanks and planes and such which have been blown up in the conflict is not readily explained, but the Congress and the American people go along. The swift Japanese advance on the national capital make the vicinity of Nanking a place of danger. The Nipponese invaders strike westward with incredible speed. The defenders bravely ignore a Japanese automaton calling on them to surrender. Nazi Germany is not the only problem in the world. Imperial Japan has been on a rampage since 1931. Franklin Roosevelt is concerned about that problem as well. And as the 1940s advance, he's going to be tightening the screws on Japanese aggression, cutting off their supplies of aircraft, petroleum, scrap metal, the supplies needed to build a war machine, step by step by step. There are negotiations with Japan. Some say that FDR is looking for an excuse to go to war, either with Nazi Germany or Japan. The negotiations go on until October, right up to the doorstep of Pearl Harbor. FDR's attitudes towards the Japanese are very interesting. And in the 1920s, when America totally excludes Japanese immigration, FDR writes in a Georgia paper, the Macon Telegraph in April 1925, let us first examine the nightmare to many Americans, especially our friends in California, the growing population of Japanese on the Pacific Slope. It is undoubtedly true that in the past, many thousands of Japanese have legally or otherwise got into the United States, settled here and raised up children who became American citizens. Californians have properly objected on the sound basic ground that Japanese immigrants are not capable of assimilation into the American population. Anyone who has traveled in the Far East knows 
that the mingling of Asiatic blood with European or American blood produces in nine cases out of ten the most unfortunate results. The argument works both ways. I know a great many cultivated, highly educated, and delightful Japanese. They have all told me that they feel the same repugnance and objection of having thousands of Americans settle in Japan and intermarry with the Japanese as I would feel in having large numbers of Japanese come over here and intermarry with the American population. In this question, then, of Japanese exclusion from the United States, it is necessary only to advance the true reason. The undesirability of mixing the blood of the two peoples. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, April 30th, Assassin's bombs bring to America the grim reality of war. War as the Axis wages it. Democracy stunned moves into action. President Roosevelt, grim and determined, goes before Congress with a united nation behind him, demanding vengeance. Mr. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, members of the Senate, of the House of Representatives, Yesterday, December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The United States was at peace with that nation and at the solicitation of Japan, was still in conversation with its government and its emperor, looking toward the maintenance of peace in the Pacific. Indeed, one hour after Japanese air squadrons had commenced bombing in the American island of Oahu, the Japanese ambassador to the United States and his colleague delivered to our Secretary of State a formal reply to a recent American message. 
Japan has therefore undertaken a surprise offensive extending throughout the Pacific area. The facts of yesterday and today speak for themselves. No matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory. With confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph, so help us God. Franklin Roosevelt may have desired an incident which would cause America to enter hostilities on the side of the Allies. But it's a question of be careful what you wish for. He probably wanted a small, manageable incident. What he got was Pearl Harbor, which was a momentous, momentous catastrophe for the United States naval forces in the Pacific. Over 2,000 American sailors are killed. A thousand more are wounded. Battleships, one after another, are sunk. And we wonder how we're going to be able to fight this war in the Pacific after all that damage. FDR, for once, is quite stunned. People see him afterwards, and he is just aghast at what has happened at Pearl Harbor. He feels almost disgraced. It's happened on his watch, after all. And yet, the FDR ebullience kicks in. All of a sudden, he's beaming, confident, determined, goes before Congress and gives that momentous speech, which takes America into the war. The soaring rhetoric, every sentence, almost every syllable, a rallying cry for free people. But following Pearl Harbor, trouble continues for America. Its possession in the Far East, the Philippines have been overrun. General Douglas MacArthur has had to flee via submarine to Australia. Only 10% of the American war effort is devoted to beating the Japanese. The rest goes to Europe to defeating Hitler. America has a tough row to hoe. But after the Battle of Midway, all of a sudden the tide turns. And American might, even with only 10% of it against the Japanese, is going to win in the Pacific. After Pearl Harbor, people are nervous in America. They're nervous about German submarines sinking ships off the Atlantic coast. They're nervous about a Japanese invasion, and the Japanese invade the Alaskan territory, take a couple of small islands. They're, they're seen off the Pacific coast. And a lot of people on the West Coast and Franklin D. Roosevelt are concerned about the loyalty of Japanese Americans not just of aliens, those who have not yet obtained citizenship, but those who have been long settled. And he institutes a policy in conjunction with the governor of California, Earl Warren, later the Supreme Court Chief Justice, to intern tens and tens of thousands of Japanese American citizens to take them away from their homes, to ship them into camps in the interior in a situation which has since been described 
as a massive, massive violation of American civil liberties and discrimination. To fight this war, 10 million more people must go to work by the end of 1943. Before the war, half of us worked. The other 50 million kept house, went to school, played, or looked for work. For every machinist available, for example, 22 are needed. For every riveter available, four are needed. Employers faced with this crisis pirate workers from other war plants by promising higher wages. With every man utilized, we are still short millions of hands. We must call upon women. Out of 50 million women at the beginning of the war, 10 million were working. In war towns all over the United States, women are called upon to leave their homes and take jobs. Among our young unmarried women and among older women whose children are grown, we have a large reserve. They discover that factory work is usually no more difficult than housework. Employers find that women can do many jobs as well as men. Some jobs better. This solves the breadwinning problem for many families whose men are at war. The government's policy is that women should get the same pay that men get for similar work. Where necessary, machinery is adapted for women's use. When a hand drill weighs heavily on feminine muscles, the lazy arm drill is introduced to take off the strain. As women are urged to take factory jobs, the Army assures them this will not necessarily affect the draft status of their husbands, so long as they're maintaining a bona fide family relationship in the home. By the end of 1943, one out of every three women will be at work. Unemployed or employed below their best capacity are a million Negroes. In government schools all over the country, such workers train for jobs of vital importance. Day and night classes are conducted. To these free schools also come men who have lost their jobs as a result of the shutting down of peacetime enterprises affected by priorities on materials. Salesmen, clerks, clothing workers in specially affected areas learn new trades. In a month or six weeks, a man can go to work as a welder on ships, tanks, guns. Before Pearl Harbor, America's divided. But as in World War One, once America gets into the war, it gets into the war. Any reservations that people may have had about this fight vanish instantly. And America goes to work, literally. Unemployment vanishes. 11 million men go into the armed forces. People go into defense plants. People sacrifice, they turn in their scrap metal, they go without, they're not able to travel. Automobile production ceases for the duration of the conflict. Rubber and all sorts of goods are eliminated from the marketplace. Fashion changes, skirts get shorter to save fabric. Pleats are eliminated to save fabric. People do whatever they can. There are blackouts on the coast, not only to save electricity, but to keep attacks or to prevent attacks from German submarines. If you see something, say something. And America mobilizes totally for war. Joseph Goebbels talks about total war for the Nazis, a total mobilization of efforts. 
We don't talk it, we do it. Wartime conditions create massive social changes, dislocations, opportunities, however one would wish to describe them. In World War One, we see that immigration is cut off from America before any immigration acts of any sort, simply because you just can't get there from here or vice versa. So what happens is industries in the North need cheap labor. And who can supply that? The black sharecroppers, farmers, the general population in the American South. They head north. And the same thing is going to happen in World War II. It's not just a question of Rosie the Riveter and women going into defense plants, leaving the home, etc., etc., but also blacks seeing increased opportunity. What that does is blacks are not necessarily willing to fight in, se in the segregated army. Franklin Roosevelt does not really go forward on any great degree on civil rights. His allies, his great base of support has always been the white South, and he is wary about doing anything to really offend them. Segregation continues in the District of Columbia. It continues in the armed forces until Harry Truman desegregates the armed forces in 1948. Location, location, location. It's important not only in real estate, it's important regarding demographics and voting patterns. Roosevelt is going to change the voting patterns of American blacks because of his social welfare programs and relief programs. But it's also going to change. Things are going to change because of where blacks live. Moving from the South to the North is incredibly important for American history. In the South, blacks could not vote. But living in New York City or Philadelphia or Chicago or Detroit, they can swing the electoral votes of the states in which those cities respectively are. White politicians now have to pay attention to black concerns, whether they want to or not. Now for the supreme double cross. It's Russia's turn to learn what a Nazi pact means. Hitler and Goering launched their thunderbolts against the nation they but yesterday called friends. The familiar Nazi technique of terror. It is made plain for all to see and study by the Nazis themselves. The Japanese invasion of the Philippines was conducted on schedule. The first landing was made on December 8th. And during the two weeks following, beachheads were successfully secured at six points in the archipelago. The Nipponese assault troops had been well prepared for this kind of campaign. With Japan's recently elected Prime Minister, General Tojo, whipping up the mighty Nipponese war machine to a fanatical tempo, the year 1942 opened on a dismal note for the Allies. The troops in Malaya, including Australia's doomed 8th Division, hopelessly outnumbered and outgunned, had been pushed back onto the island of Singapore, there to surrender on the 15th of February. The war is spreading in Europe. Britain had stood alone after the fall of France. But then Hitler strikes eastward, invading the Soviet Union, driving deeper and deeper into its territory, 
Is he going to take over the entire world? And then things start to change. Pearl Harbor forces America into the war. Germany declares war on America. It is truly a world war, global in scope now. And America is going to cooperate more and more, even before Pearl Harbor. Unprecedented cooperation between the United States and Great Britain. American presidents had rarely gone offshore to foreign countries, but Franklin Roosevelt is going to become the globetrotter. Again, remarkable in several ways. His limited physical mobility, his declining health, the danger of travel in wartime. He has a secret mission to go to Newfoundland. Ostensibly, he's on a vacation. He's going to meet Winston Churchill for a momentous 10-day conference off the coast of Newfoundland, de delivering the Atlantic Charter. It's sort of a rehash of Woodrow Wilson's 14 points, freedom of the seas, post-war cooperation. And it's startling in how it's worded or what they come out with that they're going to restructure the world after the tyranny of Nazi Germany is finally defeated. 1943 opened with a note of optimism, President Roosevelt said to Congress, We believe that the Nazis and the fascists have asked for it, and they're going to get it. One of the first steps towards that desirable end was the epoch-making meeting of Churchill and Roosevelt at Casablanca. Here, plans for the year's offensive were laid, and the terms to be offered to the enemy condensed into the two words, unconditional surrender. Roosevelt presides over an amazing collection of military leadership. George Marshall, Douglas MacArthur, George Patton, and most prominently Dwight Eisenhower, who had never been in combat, actually never was in combat during his entire career. But he's the man for the job to take over the leadership of the Allied forces. John Pershing did not preside over Allied forces in World War I, but the preponderance of American power, manufacturing ability, men under arms, gives Eisenhower the opportunity to lead Allied forces in the West. And he has that opportunity, not just because he represents American power, but he has the personality to bring people together. Perhaps a MacArthur could not do that. Certainly a Patton couldn't. But Eisenhower does it, and America leads the war effort. So if you're going to defeat Adolf Hitler, how are you going to do it? Obviously, you should invade Europe. Joseph Stalin is pressing from very early on for an allied cross-channel invasion to beat the Nazis. But Churchill warns against this. He's witnessed disasters. He presided over Gallipoli in the First World War. He saw the Dieppe disaster when the Allies had tried to invade Europe before. So he decides we should bide our time to do what we can. And what we can do is to strike at the soft underbelly of Europe. But first, to take out the weak Axis presence in North Africa. The free press of the world was shouting with increasing clamor for a second front attack against Germany. 
while troops were pouring from training camps all over the United States and England into the ships in the Atlantic ports. One by one, the bulging ships had crept in darkness from the harbors into the Atlantic. The greatest sea armada in naval history. Just two weeks after Pearl Harbor, in Washington, this vast strategy had been formulated. President Roosevelt had created the plan. Prime Minister Churchill heartily endorsed it. Dwight Eisenhower, now Lieutenant General, became commander of the new European theater. 850 ships in synchronization more vast than any ever before attempted. One part to the Mediterranean coast near Algiers and Oran, waiting for the moment of attack. One part remaining behind, off Casablanca, until along the whole North African coastline, the Allies can strike simultaneously. Operation Torch, Americans land in Morocco, sweep across Algeria, Tunisia, and catch the Nazis, catch Rommel in a great pincher movement as the British move in from Egypt. From there, it's on to Sicily, and then on to the Italian boot itself. Mussolini's forced out of the war. And then comes D-Day, June 1944. And it's interesting to listen today to FDR's D-Day message because it tells you something about him and about the America of its time. It is profoundly religious. It is a prayer more than it is a message. And this is in tune with his worldview. Once he was asked what his philosophy was, and he said, I am a Christian and a Democrat. That's all. He rallies the American people with prayer in the Depression. He rallies them in wartime. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. My fellow Americans, last night when I spoke with you about the fall of Rome, I knew at that moment that troops of the United States and our allies were crossing the channel in another and greater operation. It has come to pass with success thus far. And so, in this poignant hour, I ask you to join with me in prayer. Almighty God, our sons, pride of our nation, this day have set upon a mighty endeavor, a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization, and to set free a suffering humanity. Lead them straight and true. Give strength to their arms, stoutness to their hearts, steadfastness in their faith. They will need thy blessings. Their road will be long and hard. For the enemy is strong. He may hurl back our forces. Success may not come with rushing speed. But we shall return again and again. And we know that by thy grace and by the righteousness of our cause, our sons will triumph. They will be sore tried by night and by day. We sort of take summits for granted now, the meetings of world leaders. Before World War II, they were quite rare. But during World War II, 
you see the leaders meeting quite often. Churchill and Roosevelt meet 11 times during the war. And quite often these meetings are quite lengthy. Then came the Tehran Conference, this time between Churchill, Roosevelt and Stalin. They set the stage for the unprecedented efforts to be made finally to overthrow the forces of evil. 10 days, 11 days at a time. And then the globetrotting of Franklin Roosevelt when he goes off to North Africa to meet with Churchill. And then you've got to bring in the other world leaders. You bring in Chiang Kai-shek and Turkish leaders as well. Stalin, when do you talk with Joseph Stalin? He's very wary about moving off Soviet soil. He's very wary about giving an inch. They want to meet with Stalin in Cairo. He won't go. They want to meet with him in Iraq. He won't go there. He says, I'll go to Tehran. He will only go as far as Yalta. And when they deal with him, he's a tough customer. At one point, he talks about, after the war, we will have to kill 50 to 100,000 German officers to make sure they never come at us again. This leaves Winston Churchill aghast, and he storms out of the room. Stalin is probably testing the waters, seeing how far he can go, how much he can get in a post-war world. Will he take Poland? How much of Germany will he get? How much cooperation can he get? And in these meetings at Tehran and in Yalta, the dynamics change between the friendly FDR Winston Churchill relationship all of a sudden, you see Franklin Roosevelt distancing himself from Britain, distancing himself from British colonialism, cozying up to Uncle Joe, thinking he can charm him and create a new world order in the years to come after the defeat of Hitler. 1944. Franklin Roosevelt has already broken the no third term tradition. But now he's going to break the no fourth term tradition. I got a gal who's always late. Anytime we have a date, but I love her. Yes, I love her. It's a G.I. man alive. It starts with a bugle blowing reveille over your bed when you arrive. Hey, Jack, that's a G.I. I present to this convention for the office of President of these United States, one who is endowed with the intellectual boldness of Thomas Jefferson, the indomitable courage of Andrew Jackson, the faith and patience of Abraham Lincoln, the rugged integrity of Grover Cleveland, and the scholarly vision of Woodrow Wilson, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. 
special train at a West Coast naval base, President Roosevelt, carrying his party's banner for a fourth term, accepts the nomination, addressing the convention by radio. I have already indicated to you why I accept the nomination which you have offered me, in spite of my desire to retire to the quiet of private life. You in this convention are aware of what I have sought to gain for the nation, and you have asked me to continue. What is the job before us in 1944? First, to win the war, to win it fast, to win it overwhelmingly. Secondly, to form worldwide international organizations and to arrange to use the armed forces of the sovereign nations of the world to make another world war impossible within the foreseeable future. And third, to build an economy for our returning veterans and for all Americans, which will provide employment and decent standards of living. As he receives the Democratic nomination, he's in California, and he falls to the floor ill. His complexion is turning greenish. He is in terrible physical shape. I recently saw a newsreel of him on a warship. It is startling and disturbing. Yet, he faces Tom Dewey, the battling former district attorney of New York City, the governor of New York, a rising star in the Republican Party, and he beats Dewey. He gets that fourth term. But he goes on to Yalta, and the results are not particularly well for the American negotiating team. The war is coming to an end. Americans have marched across France. The Battle of the Bulge is fought. They crossed the Rhine. The Russians are coming up through Poland and advancing on Berlin. Montgomery attacking through the Low Countries. The noose is set for Hitler. But Franklin Roosevelt is not going to live to see ultimate victory. Like Moses, not making it to the promised land. He will die just before reaching the goal. He's down at Warm Springs, posing for a portrait. He says, I have a terrific headache and slumps over and dies. America mourns. They cry. They weep. They are stunned. For many younger Americans, particularly those in the service, he's the only president they have really known. He had rallied them in the Depression and rallied them in wartime. Americans lie in the streets in Washington. The faces we see in the newsreels, indelible, incredible sadness. But now, America has to face a post-war world without its leader. At Warm Springs, Georgia, there's grief among the child patients for the passing of their best friend. The fight against infantile paralysis was dear to him. As the funeral train rolls across the southern countryside, People throng for a last farewell to their wartime president. In Washington, at Union Station, new President Truman, Secretary of Commerce Wallace and White House advisor Burns come to pay homage. Secretary of War Stimson, Admiral Leahy and Philippine President Osmania, and members of the Roosevelt family. The mortal remains of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was president of the United States during years of dread crisis, are borne to the White House with stately ceremony. 
Hundreds of thousands line the sidewalks, and among them, many in tears. Humanitarian and champion of democracy, he had won the hearts of millions, and now they must say goodbye. April 1945, the king is dead. Long live the king. The new king is Harry Truman, former Kansas City haberdasher, not particularly connected to the Roosevelt White House, kept in the dark by FDR, kept in the dark about many things, including the new weapon, the new wonder weapon, the atomic bomb. What's Harry Truman going to do? It's a new world. Not only is Franklin Roosevelt gone, but Adolf Hitler is gone in May 1945. And then Winston Churchill is gone, dropped from power by an ungrateful British people. And then the war is over, August 1945. Those atomic bombs are dropped. It's a new world. The world of world war is over. The world of depression is over. A post-war world has begun. There will never be another Franklin Roosevelt, and there will never be another three-term president. Following the war, Republicans take over the Congress. They pass a 22nd Amendment. The two-term tradition is now the two-term law, and Franklin Roosevelt's place in the pantheon as our longest-serving president is fixed forever. What are we to make of Franklin Roosevelt? Unemployment continued to all during the 1930s. The depression not entirely successfully combated. Many of his programs ill-considered. The National Recovery Act, the Agricultural Adjustment Act. What is his legacy? His legacy is that he turned the conversation around in America from a limited federal government, not stepping on the role of the states, not stepping on the role of business, not necessarily being where Americans would look to first or even second when they had difficulties in their private lives, to where now Washington was the go-to place, the federal government, the arbiter of our NASA national policies. And Franklin Roosevelt, more than any single person, any president, bears the responsibility for that or may take credit for it. The choice is yours. It really becomes official under Franklin Roosevelt. America is the world leader. The president of the United States is the leader of the free world, not only in terms of fighting against Hitler's Nazis or Stalin's communists, but in terms of economic power. The economic machine, which is America, this great transcontinental nation, is only magnified in power by the fact that during the World War, so much of Europe, so much of the Far East is laid waste. America is going to 
become as a percentage of the world economy even greater. And that in a way, the growth of the American economy in that post-war world is in a sense a good thing for Europe because it has the surplus ability of goods, of manpower, of wealth, that it can shift that across the Atlantic in the Greek-Turkish aid plan, in the Marshall Plan, and help rebuild a devastated Europe. That American economic power is going to be, again, the arsenal of democracy, not against Hitler, but against Stalinism and against Stalin's successors. Until the Cold War ends, under Reagan, under Gorbachev, it's going to be American economic power, which first off fuels the containment policy of American foreign policy, and then under Reagan really roll back, something which had been talked about under Dulles, but really occurs and occurs totally, at least as far as Soviet communism is concerned, and leads to the fall of the Berlin Wall, the fall of the entire Soviet empire. Franklin Roosevelt has enjoyed um, a very good press from historians over the over the decades, and in many cases it was quite adoring. People are now starting to look more at the warts, where even the question of his personality, which is his great strength, his inspirational personality, people are saying. Where did he really stand on things? Could you really count on him? Was he trustworthy enough? What was behind the mask at any given point? And there was a mask. So he would move forward. He would say, I never let the left hand know what the right hand is doing. And people are more willing to question the efficacy of the New Deal programs. That being said, If you take a look at polls of historians and probably of Amer- of the average American person, the big three among presidents in terms of their ratings probably would retain the rankings of Washington, Lincoln, Franklin Roosevelt in that order. Although if you take a look at often what the uh, average person says, they grade people on who they know. So you might see a Clinton ranked very high or someone like that. Someone in someone's lifespan. Among the baby boomers, they might still rate Jack Kennedy very high. No one rates a Lyndon Johnson very high. His rankings remain quite high among the uh, historical class and among the general public. But it is no longer looked upon quite so uncritically. And that is a more balanced view. I don't like to get into saying what my specific views are of of my subjects. I avoid that in my books, and I would hesitate to sum that up here.
We are not done yet with FDR. If you'd like to ask David a question for the next Q&A episode, you can do that by either emailing it into me at royfield at gmail.com or going on to 10usp.com. That is the numbers 1 and 0, usp.com, and clicking on the Send Voicemail tab on the right. This will mean that your voice and your question will be heard on the show, which is much better than me reading out your email. So go and pose your question today. You can either donate or contribute to the show by going on to 10usp.com and either hitting the donate button or the Patreon link. You can follow me on Twitter where I'm at Royfield. Remember that is R-O-I-F-I-E-L-D. Or you can join the 10 American Presidents group on Facebook by searching for us there. And of course, you can email me where I'm Royfield at gmail.com. See you all again soon for the Q&A show with David answering your questions on FDR. So it's Merry Christmas from me, or as you say in the US, Happy Holidays. Mr. Pop. That the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Four score and seven years ago. When in the course of human events. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. There is not a black America and a white America and Latino America and Asian America. There's the United States of America. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.